I wish there were less people starting companies and more people finding their place mm-hmm. within that context because there would be bigger outcomes in tech if we were better allocators of talent. Welcome to Behind the Brand, presented by NEO. We take an inside look at the leaders behind today's most influential brands. I'm your host, Jeff Adamson. As co-founder of NEO Financial and Skip the Dishes, I am fascinated by what it takes to build great companies. This season, we'll learn from leaders who are reimagining, innovating, and transforming industries all across Canada. Let's get going. Today, I'm excited to introduce Andre Giroux, Canadian entrepreneur and investor. As founding general partner at Maple VC, venture partner at Inovia, co-chair of the C100, and first 25 employees at Uber and Hired, and an early employee or founder of several other startups, Andre has a very impressive resume. At Uber, Andre led new market entry into Canada, contributing to 10 times growth of the company. Today, with Maple VC, Andre is focused on investing in Canadian founders around the world that are building category-defining companies. Welcome to the show, Andre. Thank you for having me. So to, to start out, it's been a pretty exciting year for venture capital in Canada. Maybe just tell us a bit about what you're focused on right now. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm a generalist at the end of the day. So I've got investments across a diverse set of industries, restaurant, tech, fintech, consumer goods, construction, uh, digital health, climate. However, but I'm paying closer attention to where it seems like top talent is spending their time in these days, which is crypto, NFTs, Web3, the creator economy, all the buzzwords that you want to use. The founders are pulling me there. That wasn't intentional. When you think about your own career, like you didn't start out in technology, you didn't go to school for a computer science degree. What ended up leading you to pursuing a career in tech and ultimately to Silicon Valley? The story actually started with failure. I, I grew up in Toronto. I studied economics at the University of Toronto. So to your point, I didn't start in, you know, I didn't study engineering or computer science. I actually wanted to start my career as a investment banker uh, to start. As one would do, I tried to get a job in finance in Canada, mm-hmm. but I got rejected. <laughs> and so you just, you're forced to look outside of Canada. Uh, I did have a cousin who was a couple of years ahead of me that got a job in, in finance in, in, in Wall Street. And so he helped open up a bunch of doors. I ended up getting like multiple offers and, and I eventually worked as an investment banker for a couple of years. And so that was like the first phase of uh, my career. I learned pretty quickly, though, that investment banking wasn't for me. Um, I was frankly, more attracted to the entrepreneurs on the other side of the table. I, I worked in uh, M&A, um, and so the companies that I was on the deal team to, to mm-hmm. sell, I was really more attracted to that side of the equation. And so you can call it the second phase was me trying my hand at starting a company. And that's what led me to Silicon Valley. I'd raised a bit of money. I was trying to digitize uh, effectively like a career fair I wanted to democratize access to talent and pack and sort of package it up like enterprise software. And so I got to Silicon Valley in 2007. But then 2008, which you wouldn't have guessed at the time, was like around the corner, right? This financial crisis. And so maybe ironic, but failure enters the, the picture again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me. But I would say the learning experience at that moment was 
I really fell in love with sort of the earliest stages of company building. But I asked myself, like, maybe, maybe I don't need to be the, like, the guy at the helm of the idea that maybe I can find others with ideas that, you know, uh, get me get me jazzed and get me excited and, mm-hmm. and sort of help them on their journey. And so a lot of sleeping on Danford couches at the, my friends who went to the GSB, bumming around Palo Alto as I was on visas and trying to figure out how to stay in the U.S. through the sort of serendipitous, uh, I like to call it intentional serendipity of Silicon Valley. Um, I landed my first gig at a startup called Color Labs, which was uh, famously backed by Sequoia um, eventually uh, with a $41 million first, like, first round of funding before they even launched a product and it's sort of the talk of the town. And then that was the jump start. From there, the short version is from 2009 to 2019. I basically mm-hmm. joined four of these companies that were super early, scrappy, scrappy days. In fact, they were all before there were 25 employees. And then unfortunately, I got it right two or four times with, with Uber and, and hired. Just kind of casually mentioned Uber and hired there. No big deal at all. Just two small little companies. But I, I'm curious though, because you talked about that challenge of getting your, your first gig and how you struck out here in Canada, but then multiple offers in the US. What, what, what is it about Canada or your own skill set that really wasn't valued here in Canada, but then clearly especially based on your track record, was valuable? It's a great question. One aspect that is probably not in fault to the banks or the folks that are hiring is the fact that the size of the opportunities are just in volumes smaller, mm. right, than, than the U.S., just purely based on opportunity. So, mm-hmm. for example, BMO Nesbitt Burns, they were only hiring one investment banking analyst in that year, in 2004, 2005. RBC was hiring two. Like they're, they're, these departments were very small relative right, to the US, whereas I got hired in a class of 100 analysts. Now, maybe that's all relative to the population yeah. size you know, or the, gradu- you know, the, the number of graduates graduating, right? I don't know the, those, those exact numbers. But that's just a function of like, you have to be so, so, so top mm-hmm. and like tick all the boxes one would think it needs to be ticked because you only have one slot or two slots to fill. So you're just True. not going to look outside of the box. Whereas if there's more slots, my, my guess is the U.S. Mm-hmm. is open to looking outside of the box. <laughs> and in fact, I was mm-hmm. the only Canadian out of a hundred hired in my class. And they were confused because they were like, how did you get here? We don't even recruit in Canada, <laughs> but they were open to yeah. like someone who came outside of the box. Yeah. And I do see that as well. I remember back in, I think it was 2014, we, this, that skipped the dishes and we had launched maybe five or six cities in, in Canada. And then to kind of show that we had North America, USA potential, we actually went and launched Columbus, Ohio. You know, this is from Winnipeg. Okay. So we, we were kind of terrified of, <laughs> right. you know, entering the US, especially kind of most people go and they'll do New York City or, you know, you know San Francisco. Right. But we were going to the to Columbus, Ohio. Shockingly, though, there was a, a quite a bit more openness to what we were doing. You know, and this is back when food delivery wasn't really even a thing. And in Canada, it was really kind of 
against the grain uphill battle. Like, what is food delivery? Is it going to be a thing or not? But in the US, they were like, hey, okay, that makes sense. Let's give it a try. And we actually saw a lot more adoption on on the restaurant side quite a bit quicker. There's definitely an appetite for risk taking. You know, I I think about this even for investing, but the ambition equation or the ambition framework is like a Mm -hmm. little bit different, right? And so when you have these like massive centers of ambition that have taken markets by storm, right? Mm -hmm. So Wall Street, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, there's other centers of ambitions beyond those three that fuels other people's ambitions and excitement, Mm -hmm. right? And so you'd have to ask yourself, and and I'm still actually trying to figure out the answer to this question is like, Mm -hmm. every city has an ambition, I actually believe. So like, what is the ambition of name your city in Canada? And then like, is that spilling over to people? Like, do they want to be a Mm. part of it? And then like, do you take risks to be a part of it? You get excited. Like, so, but until you have, you know, that ambition, there's an open question mark of how you attract talent, of how you enable new products and services to fuel that ambition. I think it's an interesting way of looking at it too, because especially living in Calgary here, where it's a very, you know, oil and gas focused city. And then contrasting that with Silicon Valley or, or San Francisco, for example, and saying like you have that ambition as a city that kind of trickles down into the decisions that are made, where budget is allocated, how they set things up, with pe- the people yes. that are attracted to yes. it, most importantly. I want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier, and it was around how you fell in love with what I think most people are most terrified with, and that is the early stages of a company. W- what mm. is it about the early stages that really drew you in? I think, Jeff, I'm a dreamer. I think I'm just a dreamer <laughs> at the end of the day. My parents would say it, right? Like my, my wife still says it pretty much every day. Like, do you just get your head out of the clouds, dude? Like come back <laughs> to reality. Like, like you're always constantly dreaming of this future, both personally or professionally and what it could be. Mm-hmm. And I love that sort of exercise of capturing one's imagination and then like, finding creative ways to make that a reality. That's exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Part of the job as a venture capitalist, I, I, I learned or I'm learning and I realized is it's an exercise of dreaming. It's harder to actually listen to an idea and come up with the ways of why it will work than it is to come up with the ways that it will go wrong. It's actually quite easy. People think it's intellectually like, you're like, oh, you're super smart because you came up with the five ways that this could go wrong. That's actually the easier job. But most people could come up with all the reasons why this won't work. Yeah. Tell me the reasons why you think it will work. That's a stimulating intellectual conversation mm-hmm. to have. And like, you kind of have to dream. And it also speaks to like your own personal ambition, which is why I think entrepreneurs need to find people with an equal level of ambition to back them. Or like you will have problems in building whatever you want to build. Not only that, your earliest employees need to dream with you because there's no evidence of what you're building. And so because I'm a dreamer, if I stem, if I could probably just stem it down to, to that. Mm-hmm. We're like joining a big company. They could still, they're going after a big, big ambition and big vision, but there's like a lot more there. And I guess for me, I didn't get that excited about you know, drawing that vision out on paper and then like filling in the lines, filling in the color. It's like a coloring book. Like, how do we fill that space in? Like, what are we going to do to fill that in? Like, it's already filled. It's half filled or three quarters filled. And I need you to just fill this box. That didn't get me excited. 
Those reasons why something won't work are usually the things that fill someone's mind when they are working within a big company and they have an idea that just has no application within that company, but maybe has huge startup potential. You know, there's so many hurdles you have to go through as an entrepreneur. And the first one is you have to be brave enough to take that idea and start telling people about it. And there's certain people who are just going to tell yes. you, hey, great idea. Yeah, that's a good idea. Especially like your close friends who maybe don't have the courage to tell you, yes. hey, that's a terrible idea. Don't don't quit your job. Right. <laughs> but but, uh, right. but then you start, you start tell, talking to people and then you eventually are going to get to the people who aren't as worried about your feelings and then may say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Here's why it won't work. Here's why it won't work. You, you gotta kind of have to have that conviction that it's going to work. You've probably looked at hundreds, if not thousands of ideas that come across your desk. Is there a, a certain framework that you have or that you've seen that people go through in terms of knowing with a high degree of certainty or as high as you can, you can get, all right, now's the time for me to to start kind of really working on this and, and putting other priorities to the side? I think that the founders I've had the experience to work with when they decide to lean into something, there's a level of conviction that they can't seem to shake. This idea keeps sticking with me for whatever reason, personal experience, professional experience, and insight that's unique. There's tinkering that happens, both either just mentally or then if you are technical enough like people actually like are iterating they're shipping stuff they're putting stuff out there in the world or they're talking to potential customers you'll hear that journey that they're going through and then i think the best ones are the ones where they realize that it's actually the when more people come against the idea they get more excited that like it fuels their conviction that huh the fact that there isn't consensus that this is mm -hmm. an awesome idea Mm -hmm. is actually a really compelling I like sign. Mm -hmm. What that basically means is they're thinking very uniquely. There's something unique that others might not see, and they're starting to build their breadcrumbs of evidence that this could be very compelling and it could come in all sorts of different forms. And and yeah, I think I think it starts with that like nugget of insight that is of non-consensus, but there's backed up evidence of some sort that gives them an inkling of confidence to kind of move forward a little bit. And you can find that conviction again mm -hmm. in so many different ways. And so over time, they're just peeling layers of risk. Um, and then paired that with like the ambition that I just mentioned, it starts to grow, <laughs> right? Like. Uh, I don't know if right out of the gate, someone has this massive, maybe they do have this massive ambition, I'm not saying they don't, but I, I have also seen that that ambition grows over time too. So I, I, you, there's different flavors of it. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, like you guys, right? Like I got the sense, Andrew's like, there's no reason why these five or six banks have 90% market. Like we're just, we're going to build Canada's next yeah. bank. We don't agree with it. Um, and then we have this unique insight. And we just have like this unique insight based on our experience of how we're going to do it. Just think of my own experience, you know, first at Skip and then now here at Neo, where you walk through the idea. And for me, both times it was like, this is the future. Whether we do it or someone else does it, it's going to happen. So you have that conviction and then you go and talk to people and yeah, you don't have a consensus. So it's contrarian because okay. it's like, no, no, no one's going to order 
Yes. you know, Earl's and get that delivered. Yes. No one wants prime rib delivered <laughs> or, you know, no one's going to bank with a tech company. They, you know, and then I think your team needs to match that ambition. Like I'm a firm believer in, in like, like the chemistry and the importance of chemistry between kind of the founding team members and the early, yeah. early team. What are some of the characteristics that you have noticed in successful startup teams that gives you that confidence that they will be able to weather the inevitable ups and downs that naturally come with a startup? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really stems from the founders for me, but I, I have a working sort of framework that I mentally kind of process when meeting founders who then give me a sense of the team behind them just to code it, just to help me. I call it zeros, ones, and twos. And so, so bear with me here. So zeros are like these inventor founder types. Okay. Ones are these builder types and twos are these operator types. I think of a process of building a company kind of in like a step, call it just in, in to make it very simple, like a step five process where mm -hmm. step five is like the vision is achieved, which generally the vision's never achieved. <laughs> As I meet the founder and I'm trying to figure out what bucket they're in, take the inventor type. So if I, you know, I'm thinking this person could be mm -hmm. in the zero bucket. When I ask them, what is the vision from an inventor? I, I typically get like, here's what step five could look like. Technically, they have the skill set. You look at their backgrounds, you're like, gosh, you could build it. Like, you could actually build that. Like, whether it's the PhDs or the degrees that they've got or the experience, you're like, yeah. Like, I'm listening to someone who's telling me about the future, and I look at their resume, and I'm like, you could build that future. Like, I buy that, right? Yeah. But then when you ask them, what is step one? I generally find that the zero's answers is quite linear. It's like, here's what step one's going to be, because it's like, right? Yeah. But what I've learned is like the biggest companies in tech are never obvious in the beginning. So step one is probably a very non-obvious first step that is definitely not linear. It's probably like zigzagging your way to step five. Like it's, it's not hmm. going to be obvious. And so when I don't get that like non-obvious answer for step one, I kind of put them in the zero bucket. I'm like, hey, that's okay. Like you're, you're probably really great at the step five. Right? Which is which is needed. We need someone to create invent the future. Yeah. Okay. So let's move over to ones. Ones builders. What I get from builders are like they also can communicate step five, but you look at their background and there's like no evidence that they can build that <laughs> future that they're communicating to you. Like yeah. you're like that's that's great. That's a great dream, but like I don't know how you are going to actually achieve that. However, when you say hey, what's step one? They either like, they give you this very non-obvious start step one, and they show you evidence of them going from zero to one. Like they're actually yeah. doing they stuff connect the to, dots get, a little bit. to get you from zero to one. Yeah. They're like making it happen. Right. And you're like, gosh, okay. Like, I don't even get what step one is. Like what you just said, like, I'll have to like completely take a step back and kind of think about it. Yeah. How do black cars connect to like a logistics engine? Like, ah, I don't. I don't really see how that, or like, I'm not sure how books go becomes the everything store, or, or I'm not sure how, yeah. you know, like you could, you, how a sports car becomes like a battery company. Like you could make these connections, right? Yeah. And then twos, operators, twos, not that they can't come up with a step one or like paint you a vision of step five, but way they, where they seem to capture 
my imagination or like where they jump off the page from a skill set perspective is on step two, three, and four. They can take an idea yeah. and operationalize the shit out of it. They could like you give them something in and they can do circles around you of how they would like execute. And you're like, wow, okay, that's mm-hmm. like your that's your superpower. My belief is that the biggest companies on the planet need to have a plethora of zeros, ones, and twos at their company from a team perspective. Mm-hmm. Half of the battle of building anything great, like literally 50% of the equation is people. Now, whether we like it or not, we are attracted to people like ourselves. And so zeros are going to attract other zeros. Ones are going to attract other ones and twos are going to attract other twos. Now, what's interesting about ones, however, I've found is because they're good at step one, they're good at organizing talent in a way that zeros and twos might not be because they're all they're both dancing around what the hell step one is. And so, but once you figured out step one, you can say to a zero, here, here's your lane, dude, go run, like go invent the future. Like you don't have to worry about step one. We got it figured out, right? Like go. Or like here's number two operator. Like I already kind of got the, the kernel going. Like, I don't know how to take it to the step two, but like you clearly do. So like run with it, right? And like they have their lanes and mm-hmm. like and like no one's kind of stepping on each other. I basically try my best and I will get it wrong, but I try my best to get us to attract this spectrum of mm-hmm. talent and these skill sets. And this can not only be applied at the founder level, it can be applied in the company, right? Is the PM of this project or this department or this or this product roadmap, mm-hmm. are they the one? the one, the builder for it, yeah. who can both get it from zero to one, but then, and then attract the zero to like build for the future of that roadmap, but then get a bunch of executors along the way, right? Like they, they have a mini roadmap of going one to five. Yeah. And like, are they that mini one inside the company? Like that it's a framework that helps me think about a way of organizing talent in, internally. Here's yeah. the last thing I'll say about this. The trick is everyone is a one. It just depends on the context of what you're working on. So it's my version of product market fit, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, for example, right? Let's make examples. In the Facebook story, I'm not entirely sure who the zero is, but like Sheryl Sandberg's clearly the two and Zuck is the clearly the one. But let's take Sheryl Sandberg. In the context of her lean-in movement that she has built, she's like the one for that. She's like the one, right? Like who else could do that, right? But like in the context of Facebook, she's a two. And so like when you're meeting both talent for a particular role that you think should be mm. the builder, not the operator, the like inventor, yeah. like are they the one for that thing? Or, or, or maybe they're a one for something else, like allocating people to their skill sets yeah. and the context that they're working on yeah. is like the most important thing <laughs> to getting it right. And you also see it a lot too, where you may have someone who's a two, but you've put them in a role that requires a one. And it's just miserable for, for pretty much everybody. Yes. And look, the reality is even as an investor, there's a lot of twos thinking that they're the one for this business. And not that a two can't build a successful business that could be acquired and make mm-hmm. a lot of people money, but I don't think they like create societal change in a really big way. They would probably be best suited to find that thing that they're really good at, right? Like, 
and attach themselves to the one maybe and be an executor or an inventor in the, in the story. I wish there were less people starting companies and more people finding their place mm-hmm. within that context because there would be bigger outcomes in tech if we were better allocators of talent. Even with that framework too, I think it's it's helpful. The majority of people work within big companies. Big companies employ tons of people and a lot of small companies don't have ambitions to be big companies. They're, they're small businesses. But in kind of understanding, are you a zero, a one or a two? And then looking at a company and saying, hey, this company needs a lot of twos or this company you know, needs ones. And yes. you're thinking like, hey, you know what? I've been doing this two job for a long time. I hate it. A lot of people hate their jobs. Yes. And I actually want to go in and get some experience doing a one. I mean, famously, you were employee number 25 at Uber. I guess, what have you noticed that are the distinct differences between each different stage of growth from a people perspective? Like when you were at Uber, were you just working on one stuff? When you went to Hired and you kind of were expanding into like six different countries, that was more of a two? Or like, how, how, how was that for you? And what have you noticed in those different stages? Yeah, look, the earlier stages... You've got to get this thing from zero to one and get it off the ground. I am a two in, in that in capacity to go help someone. I've generally either both invested or joined companies when that zero to one phase is somewhat figured out. Mm-hmm. But you can think of this as just like there's that innovation stage and then there's the scale stage. And like in the case of Google, right, like they clearly figured out this innovative solution and they were able to say, okay, let's bring in a two and literally make that two a CEO because innovating mm-hmm. has going to take a back seat because we're just focused on two-like stuff. We mm-hmm. need to go from two to three, three to four. Like that, That's all that matters because mm-hmm. we figured it out. Now, there are some companies where you constantly need to reinvent yourself. And I, I do think in tech, you have to kind of cannibalize yourself or you die. So you need ones still involved, mm-hmm. one type individual still involved, continuously taking the new stage that the company's at and then doing zero to one work, mm. right? So, and that might be like, Uber went from Black to X to Pool to Eats. And then guess what? Eats is the biggest business, not like everything else you started with. So like, if you didn't do that, innovative cycle, you wouldn't have landed on your biggest product. And that like Apple has a a history of doing that same journey. And so you can get caught up in like just executing and doing two like work because, oh, you found product market fit. You're done. Like you just, Mm -hmm. you just got to execute. We know these markets change probably faster than ever before now. So guess what? What worked for you in the first three years of the business might not work for you in the next three who is on the team that's doing zero to one like work to find your next thing? Otherwise, you there is a path to death. Like it's just going to be a slow path, but mm-hmm. it, but like you will die and stuff like yeah. likely. And so it all depends. But mm-hmm. you basically need these three archetypes. And any one company indexing on one archetype has a path to not achieving its vision. Like it's it just mm-hmm. it's not it's not going to be a massive company. It, again, it could be acquired for a billion dollars. It could yeah. be acquired for 500 million. Like these are not bad outcomes from a financial perspective, but you don't change society. Yeah. And it's interesting to think of too, in that even when you're growing, if you're not already thinking about some of the next things without taking your eye off the ball, 
the seeds of your demise are actually have already been planted in other companies somewhere. They're at zero still. Yes. I think a lot of the times you see this in, in a lot of the companies that have been disrupted, but by the time they figure out that they need to make a change, those other companies have such strong network effects that you're, you're just too late. And then you also have a whole bunch of twos in your company. And when in fact, you actually need to like reset everything and go back to zero to one again. <laughs> That's painful. That's very painful. Yes. Yes. That's why the builder founder type, it's tough to even get rid of that person. You know, like when founders leave or get unfortunately let go or, mm -hmm. or pushed out because the board or the investors think like, we got this covered. We don't need the crazy person anymore. We don't need the zero to one guy or gal, right? But like you kind of do. <laughs> and this is no offense against where Uber is today, but like the perfect combination probably would have been a Dara who's a two and a Travis who's a one and a Garrett Camp who's a zero, I think. Mm -hmm. Like all of them together would have like actually probably been magical. When you think of your experience at Uber, you know, what it's gone through to get to where it is today, do you feel like some of the controversy that it went through, some of that was inevitable or even required in order for Uber to get to where it is today? No, not exactly. But uh, I will say during the earliest days, the business that and the market that Uber was up against was non-trivial whatsoever everyone has all of their challenges in the space that you play you for the taxi industry it was was entrenched ways of how these businesses operated and um when someone's coming in to rethink it from like first principles like it's it's gonna have a lot of pushback and so the only thing that i think was inevitable and required was a founder's level of conviction to push through all of that, those walls, that, that pushback. Travis got a lot of energy and had a lot of conviction that he wanted to right a wrong. There was like a wrong in the world, like you're going up a wrong in the world and you're trying to make it right. And your process of going through walls will be different than what mm -hmm. we went through. But like, Ours were like legal walls. Ours was like mafia walls. Like they were, these are real, like hell's angels coming after me mm -hmm. in, in some of my launches, <laughs> particularly in Canada. Like, like I thought I joined a very simple tech company. Like who thought I would be being chased by hell's angels. And so like, is the founder that you're meeting or joining or talking to or thinking of investing mm -hmm. in, are they right? Are they like the person that's going to walk through the walls? And yeah. the things that are necessary to to right the wrong that they see in the world for their industry, like everyone's and everyone, every processor is going to be different, right? And so that that part was true. Yeah, how that scales and how it could get out of hand and that could be out of someone's control, actually. But like you needed the DNA of Travis, in my opinion, yeah, of that founder market fit mm -hmm. to like have a shot at Uber being anything interesting. Otherwise we would have packed up for any other founder because it was really hard. So having worked with the, and, and I'm probably spending too much time on the zero ones and twos, but I find it really interesting because how people <laughs> work together, I feel is one of the biggest challenges in, in kind of building, scaling and operating a company. But oftentimes the, the strengths of these individuals, these kind of spiky strengths 
often come with quite strong weaknesses as well. Do you have any any learnings or even examples of where you've kind of had to figure out like how do I get all these people with all these strengths and all these obvious weaknesses to somehow come together to build something special? Well, that's definitely not my my job. What I look for is is the founder that I'm about to partner with recognizing these challenges and 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 how are they organizing them themselves and getting that right is hard and I will get it wrong as I mentioned earlier. But you're absolutely right. Like someone's strengths oftentimes becomes their weaknesses. And so the way you combat that is how are you recruiting? Like who is compensating for you in this area? Because it's weak. <laughs> if they're struggling to hire in those areas, or even if they're unaware that they need to hire in those areas, like that is those are problematic. Oftentimes I have found and that they have self-organized and figured this out on their own and they Mm -hmm. are constantly recruiting and filling in the holes for where they need to play i guess one example even just in myself so i I hired to bring in the other company when i joined it was zero to one had been successful like they figured out something that was working in san francisco i was the guy that was like okay bring this to other cities and i said okay let's let's try new york as the first city Mm-hmm. And I got it off the ground and I did in three months what SF took to do in 12 months in, in every metric across the board. And so it was like, okay, wow, this is working. Mm-hmm. And I hired the team. And then I asked as like the two or the expansion guy who joined the company as the 15th employee, I was like, I want to GM this market. Like I just want to grow this market. And the CEO sat me down and said, we could do that. And that, that's interesting if that's what you want to do. But I will tell you right now, I can find a way better manager. Like, you're not the best manager, <laughs> just straight up. But like, if that's a skill set you want to learn, then great. But I will tell you right now, I, I will be hard pressed to find someone that can go light up another 10 markets the way you do. Like, I just, I don't know if I could find anyone on the planet to do that. Yeah. So like, I need you to go do that. Or like, I think for your career, you should do that. And then like, we'll find someone to like GM. And it was a moment in my career. I was like, even just like as, as my own personal yeah. talent, right? It's like, shit, I like want to do that GM thing. Cause I like want to yeah. learn additional skills and whatever. But like, it was like my own version of product market fit. Like the market yeah. is telling me I'm good at this. I should like likely go down that path, <laughs> not resist it and try to like, you know? Well, it's helpful having people who have that, you have that relationship and that trust with that are going to be able just to tell you, sometimes that's painful to hear, but then it's also kind of good to know what your superpower is. I'm curious about another superpower and I, and I feel like I, I have a, a hunch of what the answer is, but when you meet with a founder, how long does it take for you to realize whether you're going to invest or not? And how often is your gut wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong, Jeff, because at the end of the day in venture, you don't know if you're right for <laughs> yeah. like seven to 10 years, right? So <laughs> I'm still within that framework. Okay. So I, I, I can't say at all that even, I'm right. Even just invest, invest though. But yes, when I invest, to answer your question, I know very quickly. We're talking like sometimes first five minutes, yeah. first 30 minutes, like generally the first call. I am like, this is, this is it. <laughs> and now it's just like doing a bunch of work to validate whether you're crazy 
whether you haven't seen all the holes. It's just like either talking yourself out of it or talking yourself more into it yeah. at that point. But thankfully, this intuition comes from having worked with these four founders before there were 25 employees, Yeah, you know, getting it right with an Uber and a hired, seeing a breadth of, mm-hmm. of experience there across a decade. And then again, I will get it wrong, but if I didn't have that, that a lot of this is feel a lot when you're early, when you're betting mm-hmm. on people a lot. Of, now, again, I mentioned the framework that I have, so I'm putting it through my framework, yeah. trying to find dots that connect that framework yeah. to like what bucket is this person potentially in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I think I know pretty, pretty quickly. I think we've got to wrap up here and I could probably go for a long time on this stuff, but I, I do want you to get a message out about Maple VC. What do you want people to know about Maple? Oh, thanks, Jeff. That's a good, I mean, ultimately, Maple is a bet on people. And currently, that DNA has roots from Canada. But those roots come from this rejection that I shared with you earlier. Oftentimes, they've been rejected at some part of their life from people within their own circles, whether that's in the country or whether that's in your community. That drives the most ambitious people to sort of start looking outside of their circles and fuels a specific level of drive that I think is interesting and and level of grit. Other parts of that DNA is fueled by ambition, right? It's just fueled by wanting, wanting to compete with the best in the world, which also I think is tied to us in Canada because of our proximity, right? To Wall Street, to Hollywood, to Silicon Valley. Like, I think it rubs off on the most ambitious people where we don't ask the question, hey, let's be the best in a country, like in our country. We ask ourselves, like, can we be the best in an industry, which happens to be like an hour, a flight away? And like, they're comparing themselves to that. That is, that is like part of the DNA that, that I'm mm-hmm. focused on. And then I think the last thing I will say is our schools, right? Like the schools that we went to aren't globally recognized. That means our work product, what we produce needs to speak louder than our resume versus our counterparts down South. And like that also produces a certain level of work ethic and like approach to problems and approach to a market. And so those are like a few things that like is stems from the name and the DNA of a founder that I'm backing. I, I do think Maple extends beyond Canada because those things I just mentioned could come from people who are have no relation to Canada, right? Mm-hmm. But like rejection, you know, their work product speaks louder than their resume, their ambition is massive, right? Like, but like I just happen to know that having grown up in Canada, these things are um, common amongst a certain level of people in Canada. And so that's my starting point. But but if that DNA resonates with anyone, like, you know, you're that person, like, I want you to find identity in Maple, right? That's what I, I hope for people to wear it proudly. Like, I'm a Maple founder. <laughs> that's that's the ambition that I have. That is awesome. And you know what? It's It's been so good to hear all of your experience and, and what you're working on at Maple. And, and I just want to express just how grateful I am for you coming on the show. Jeff, this has been a pleasure. And thank you for the insightful questions. Hopefully this will be helpful. And uh, this was very enjoyable.
Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand, presented by NEO. If you enjoyed today's show and are interested in joining NEO, head over to join.neo.cc slash podcast 50. This link will also be available in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.